Good morning. Welcome to the first Sunday of Lent, um, that uh, ancient practice of the church, denying ourselves um, so that we may draw close to God. Uh, during this time leading up to Easter, this is um, a 40-day journey, although uh, Sundays don't really count in Lent. Um, at least they don't count as part of the fast in Lent, so it, Lent's really more like 46, 47 days. Besides the point, just nerdy. Um, so as we enter into Lent, of course, we begin with Ash Wednesday. That was this past Wednesday. Several of you were here uh, to spend some time in prayer uh, on Ash Wednesday. And on Ash Wednesday, we, we say and we remember um, this truth, from dust you have come, and to dust you shall return. And it has uh, been on my mind uh, all week, this phrase keeps repeating uh, in me, it is, um, it's reminding me of some things. It's reminding me that, that, that I am human. I am a human being. Um, that I am a, a created being. Uh, someone made me. Uh, it reminds me that I'm a mortal being. Uh, at some point, uh, this life as I understand it uh, and as I experience it uh, will come to an end. Uh, it reminds me that I am a frail being. There are things in my life that are completely outside of my control. Um, as much as I don't like to admit that and wish that that were not the case, there's just stuff that, that is beyond my ability to control. And so as we enter into Lent, uh, I remember these things. And I remember that I, I am created by a, a creator who loves me. I remember that I am created by a God who longs to be near to me. I remember that I have a Savior in Jesus who cares about me. I remember that I have guidance by the Holy Spirit. In Lent, I am confronted by all of these things. And so I hope that um, over the next several weeks, our journey through Lent together will be meaningful and purposeful to you. Um, we mentioned last week that we do have um, some some Lenten readings. There is, if you didn't get one last week, there is a, a chart of Lent readings uh, back in the entryway, and they're also being posted to our Facebook page every day. I uh, hope that you'll take advantage of those to, to journey through Lent together and remember all of these things and be confronted by these truths and by these realities, including um, by the truth and the reality that I, um, that I have sin uh, to deal with, that we have sin to deal with. Meg talked about that a little bit last week, that that we are a, a people who do have sin and that we don't like to talk about it really all that much. Um, Meg said that from, from the vantage point of a millennial. Uh, I am the next generation up from that. I'm Gen X, and I still don't like to talk about my own sin. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that anybody does. I'm not sure that, that anybody from any generation is like, woohoo, let's talk about sin. But we're going to. So get your game face on. Here we go. Um, we, we do need to talk about sin. Lent actually reminds us um, of, our, of our brokenness, of our, um, of, our, of our less than perfectness. Even though we are created by a good God who calls us good in the creation, we have sin issues in our life. Stanley Hauerwas um, writes, At Lent, I am invited to take myself seriously, even if it means taking myself seriously as a sinner. Moreover, Lent is attractive because sin itself is often attractive. On the whole, we are bored people, and 
we would all be a little sad without our sin. We secretly suspect, after all, that our sin keeps life interesting. Lent is thus a time when painful as finding and acknowledging our sin might be, we are at least attracted to the complexity of the task of acknowledging and repenting of our sin. We have sin, and we ought to deal with it. We may not want to, we may not want to dwell about it, we might not want to think about it, we may not want to talk about it, but we should. We should acknowledge our sin, we should understand our sin, uh, we should name it, and wrestle with it in some way. And so as we approach Easter, we intend to do just that over the next five Sundays through the lens of the New Testament book of James. And if you have your Bible with you today, feel free to open up to the book of James. We're going to be spending a little bit of time there in a few minutes. Before we get there, let me give you just a little bit of background about this tiny little book of the New Testament um, that you may or may not have spent um, a lot of time with in your life. The author of the book uh, claims, as he writes it, to be James, a servant of Jesus Christ. That's, that's the author's um, introduction. The early church believed this person to be James, um, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, brother of Jesus, uh, oldest son of, of Joseph and Mary. Um, and uh, uh, we don't know that that's the case, uh, but the earliest church um, liked to, to think that. Um, James uh, died about 62 AD. We have a record of that. Um, and this book may have been authored somewhat later than that, so we're not, we're not entirely sure who wrote it. Uh, could have been James, the brother of Jesus. Could have been somebody else named James. Uh, it was possibly even written um, as one of the latest books of the New Testament. At least we, we don't have any real evidence of its existence until um, fairly late in the era of the church fathers. And the church fathers um, had some, some disagreement about who wrote it and um, uh, why it was written. Uh, it, it says that it's written to the 12 tribes in the diaspora, the, the 12 tribes in exile, uh, which makes it sound like it's written to uh, Jewish Christians, but the content of the book really does not follow that. And so we're probably to understand that the book is written to uh, all Christians, in fact, James might be one of the only really true universal books of the New Testament that's intended to go out to and be read by any Christian, all Christians, everywhere, at all times. And so uh, James is certainly a book uh, for us. Uh, and what do we what do we do with um, with this? What do we do with this book that we don't really know where it comes from? We don't we don't 100% know who wrote it or or even when it was written. What do we do with that? Well, we trust in the Holy Spirit who has um, shepherded this book and guarded this book down through the centuries to to have it passed on through the Christian communities and eventually into the canon of the New Testament and, and, and then down through the centuries to us. There's something here that the Spirit wants us to know. There's something here that the Spirit wants us to see in this book because it has been preserved and passed on for us. And there really is, there are some beautiful things in the book of James. And, and over the next few weeks, we want to explore especially what the book of James has to say about sin. Because in this very brief book that's only five chapters long, James spends quite a bit of time talking about sin. At least eight times in five chapters, 
Uh, the book of James uses that word. And so uh, we want to talk about sin, and we're going to let James help us do that. And as we begin, there are a couple of fundamental questions that we need to wrestle with about sin. And the first one is, what is it? I mean, we talk about it. We talk about sin. We use that word in church. Um, we know that it's bad and that we ought to be sad or sorry about it. But oftentimes, I'm not sure that we really know what it is. For James, it appears, and I think more and more as I, I grow in my faith, for me, sin is not so much um, the breaking of a rule. I think that that's what we tend to think of sin as, primarily. We, we tend to think of sin primarily as breaking a rule or doing something bad. Um, this is kind of the, the, the average framework for sin, I think, uh, for many people, for, for most of us, perhaps. But that's not primarily what we're talking about. Because sin can be that. Sin can be breaking a rule, can be doing something bad, can be disobeying God. Uh, there certainly are any number of lists in the Old Testament and New Testament of like things you shouldn't do, things that are bad, don't do those things. Uh, God would really like you to, to, to not do that. Uh, there are certainly those things. Uh, however, the sins that James chooses to talk about in his book don't make those lists. Um, James talks about other kinds of sins, um, and he talks about them in different ways. In fact, in, in chapter 4, when we get there in a few weeks, um, we're going to discover that, that James actually says that anybody who knows the good thing that they ought to be doing and opts not to do that, that for them becomes sin. And so sin isn't just primarily doing something bad or breaking some kind of rule. It can also be a failure to do something. It can be, it can be choosing to disengage from, from good. And more and more and more fundamentally, I've come to believe that sin really at its core is that which damages relationship. I've stopped thinking of sin primarily as doing something bad and more thinking of it as something which damages relationship whether that relationship is between me and God, me and you, me and, and a stranger, me and my family, uh, me and the creation around me, or, or even damages my own relationship with myself, my soul. Um, I've come to believe that more and more strongly as time has gone on. Um, uh, Frederick Goichner writes this, he says, other people, and if you happen to believe in him, God, or if you happen not to, the world, society, nature, whatever you call the greater whole of which you're a part, sin is whatever you do or fail to do that pushes them away, that widens the gap between you and them and also the gaps within yourself. And I think we can see this if we go all the way back uh, to the very first sin. Um, I didn't bait and switch you. You don't have to turn to Genesis. I'm not reading anything out of Genesis. But, but just for a second, I, I want you to think about the Genesis story, uh, about what happened all the way back in the beginning with Adam and Eve and the serpent and God and the tree and the fruit in the garden. 
And if you're aware of that story, um, as things unfold, um, there's a, a tree that Adam and Eve are, are not supposed to eat from, and they, they choose to. And in the eating of that, they, they find their relationship with God estranged and damaged, and they hide from God, the damaging of relationship, right? God comes into uh, their world and into their garden looking for them, asking, where are you? Uh, a question God already knows the answer to, of course, but, but that invitation back into relationship is really what God is after. And what progresses from there, if it weren't so sad, would almost be a comedy of errors with people pointing fingers and blaming each other. As God says to Adam, what have you done? And Adam says, well, the woman you put here, by the way, he blames both Eve and God in that statement, right? Well, her, but you, yeah, well, not me. And God then turns to Eve and says, what have you done? And then she blames the serpent, right? Well, the serpent did... And there's breaking of relationships all over the place, right? Between man and God, between Adam and Eve, between humanity and, and animals. And, and even, even, as God, even as God explains the consequences of their actions, and I do think that this is consequence rather than punishment, but even as God explains the consequences of their action, their consequences are, in, uh, are going to take the shape of broken relationships, Right? A broken relationship between humanity and the earth. A broken relationship between humanity and the animals. A broken relationship between men and women. A broken relationship between humanity and God that God is going to seek to restore over time. And so we see these relational um, types of things. Sin is, is relational. It's sin is never just something that affects me. Marty talked about that a few weeks ago, right? If you were here a few Sundays ago, um, Marty shared with us that, that one of the reasons that repentance is so, so important, that reconciliation is so, so important, is because my sin never affects just me alone. I, I, sometimes I fool myself into thinking that, but it's not true. My sin affects the people I live with, the people I work with, the people I, I, I run into during the day. My sin affects my church, the church. My sin affects the world around me. And so we, we need to deal with sin because it does affect relationships. If it didn't, if it was just about something that happened to me, okay, but because it affects relationships, it's something that needs to be dealt with. Because sin really is the breaking of relationships around us, whether it's with our spouses, our roommates, our coworkers, our, our family members, our, our, our classmates, whoever. Because sin is about the breaking of relationships, we need to deal with it. So what is sin it, it, at its core? It is the breaking of relationships. And where does it come from? Well, again, I think we get this wrong a little bit. Um, uh, most often growing up, I had this idea that sin was kind of some kind of outside force, like, coming at me, um, that I had to, like, defend myself from, you know? Uh, but more and more, especially as I read the book of James, that doesn't seem to be the case. Sin isn't something that is attacking me from the outside, but it's something that kind of bubbles up from within. And here we, we do turn to James for the first time. If you want to come with me, it'll be on the 
wall behind me, or you can follow along in your copy of the text. But in James chapter 1, verse 12 and following, James kind of um, outlines for us where sin comes from. He says this, he says, Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. No one, when tempted, should say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire. Being lured and enticed by it, then when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. According to James, our, our sin is not some sort, of, some sort of outside force trying to get at us, but it's something that begins from within us. He says, you, you can't blame God for your sin. You can't say, God tempted me. And, and likewise, I, I think that we probably ought to give up the phrase, the devil made me do it. Nobody else makes me sin. Sin is a choice. Sin is, is born out of my own selfishness or my own desire. It's not that desire in and of itself is wrong. Of course, desire in and of itself is not wrong. What we choose to do with it is important, though. When our desires are left unchecked and allowed to run rampant, they very easily lead us toward selfishness, self-gratification, self-importance, self-delusion, self-satisfaction, and toward sin, and as James points out, eventually toward death. And James is not the only one to say that. Paul echoes that, that the wages of our sin is death. However, desire tempered by God's divine love and Christ's commands can lead us away from sin. When our desires are paired with God's commands, with Christ's love, uh, we can be led toward useful and helpful things on behalf of other people in the world. And, and, and here is what the rest of the, the first chapter of James really talks about. As James identifies for us that, that sin is birthed out of us, that sin comes from our own desire, that sin comes from our own unchecked selfishness. He then spends the rest of this first chapter kind of wrestling with how, how to how to reckon with that, how to fight against that. And, and let me say from the outset, we're never going to get this 100% right. All right? I, I'm never, I'm never going to get complete control of my sin. I, I've lived too long to believe in that. But that doesn't mean I give up either. This is not a zero-sum game, all right? I don't get to say, well, since I'm never going to get a handle on sin, then I just, well, go ahead and do whatever you want to. No, that's not the way of Jesus. I do recognize that I need Jesus ultimately to deal with my sin, that he's the only one that can, that the love and grace and mercy and justice of God are what's needed to deal with my sin. But in that context, I am also called myself, and you are called, we are called, to wrestle and to reckon with our sin, with our propensity toward it, with our temptation to it. We might not be able to eradicate it, 
Only Jesus can do that in a permanent way. And we do look forward to that. That's part of what Lent does. It helps us focus forward to Easter, to the, to the promise of new life in Christ and, and sin ultimately being dealt with and done away with. But Lent also calls me to wrestle with my sin. It calls me to remember that, that I am dust, and to dust I shall return. And because of that, there's sin to be wrestled with and reckoned with in my own life. And helpfully, James gives us a good chunk of advice on how to do that. And so, uh, very quickly, I want to just move through the rest of this chapter with you. Um, as James gives us uh, several really good pieces of advice, I think, for how to kind of wrestle and reckon with our sin. If, if, we are, if we are tempted from within, if we're tempted by our own desires and our own selfishness, how do we, how do we reckon with that? How do we wrestle with that? How do we fight with that um, so that our lives produce something good um, instead of just producing sin? Well, the first thing that James draws our attention to is generosity. That, that we're to be a generous people. Here's what he says in verses 16, 17, and 18. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved. Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation of shadow due to change. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Every good gift, James says, and he's not talking about the good gifts we receive, but he's talking about the good gifts that we impart to others and into the world. Every good gift has its origin in God. And so when we are generous, we are saying no to our selfish desire, and we are wrestling away from sin, and we are wrestling toward God through our generosity toward others. Just as God was generous with us and gave us a new birth, so too are we called to be a generous people. That's one way to wrestle with our sin is through generosity. Another way is empathy. Empathy helps us wrestle against sin. James continues, this is 19, 20, and 21. He says, you must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. For your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. I, I love um, uh, James here. you got to be quick with some things and slow with other things. Right? Quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. What he's really calling us to is a life of empathy. A, a life of, of instead of Instead of being, instead of brashly forcing myself onto someone else, of humbly listening to someone else and allowing their life to impact my own. He says, anger does not produce righteousness. No, anger does not. Gentleness does, kindness does, empathy does. These are our, our dwindling and precious commodities in our world. Uh, lately, I've been hearing some very troubling talk from some corners of American Christianity that God doesn't call us to kindness or empathy. That's stupid. Uh, God is the definition of kindness and empathy. 
In his love, he is kind toward us. In his love, he listens to what we have to express to him and feels that with us. He, he is so empathetic that he became one of us to live among us, that he experienced temptation in every way just as we did according to the book of Hebrews. And so empathy helps us to wrestle away from sin. Kindness helps us to wrestle away from sin. Gentleness helps us to wrestle away from sin and toward God. What else does James recommend for us? Well, he actually recommends a, a, an active life of doing the things of God. Here's what he writes in verses 22 through 25. He says, but be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and on going away immediately forgot what they looked like. There are days I wish. Uh, but those who look at the perfect law of God, the law of liberty and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. James calls us into an active faith, a faith that cannot be allowed to be only intellectual. That, that's a problem for me personally, honestly. Um, people approach faith in a variety of different ways. I tend to pr approach my faith primarily intellectually. Um, that, that's how I tend to connect with faith. And, and if you do too, that's, that's fine. That's good. But we cannot only connect with our faith in that way. We must connect with our faith in an active, participating way as well. We must be doers of what we have learned. If all we do is, is, is absorb our faith, take in our faith, think about our faith, ponder our faith, it becomes very easy to do other things that have nothing to do with our faith or are even contrary to our faith. But when we fill up our activities with the same things that are filling up our hearts and our minds, when our activities are filled up with our faith, well, then it becomes more difficult to act contrary to the things of God. We need to be a people who have an active faith. And then James closes out his chapter by also recommending, if we're going to wrestle against sin, that we be a people who have true religion. Uh, Religion is a funny word. We often in Christianity like to say that Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship. Has anybody ever heard that? Seen that printed on a mug? Said that? Worn the t-shirt? All right. It's true. Christianity is a relationship. It also happens to be a religion. It is both. They are not mutually exclusive. All right. And uh, the word religion, actually, in the Bible only appears five times in the New Testament. Five times that word gets used. Three of them, three of those five times are about Christianity. Two are about some other religion. Three of those five times are about Christianity. And all three of them appear in the next two verses. Here's what they say. If anyone thinks they are religious and do not bridle their tongues but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. 
Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. James says if we want to wrestle away from our sin, if we want to reckon with our our tendency, our temptation, our propensity towards sin, that we need to engage in a true form of religion. And James says that, that partially that has to do with how we talk, and we're going we're gonna to deal with that in two weeks. But it also deals with how we treat other people. There's that relationship component again, right? How we treat widows and orphans. In other words, how we treat those who are the least of these, those who, who are overlooked, those who are unloved, unwanted, those who are unable to care for themselves. How we treat other people matters. It's the hallmark of our true religion. To treat one another well and to care for those who cannot care for themselves. In so doing, we keep ourselves unstained by the world. The world mistreats people around us all the time whether through words or through actions or through inactions, through callousness and a lack of empathy, through slander, through evil, through wickedness, through apathy. The world mistreats people all the time. We can be different. We can embrace a faith that is lived out. That's all religion really means, by the way, is a faith that is lived out. We can embrace a faith that has lived out a true religion that cares for people in distress and in so doing help to prevent ourselves from becoming stained by the world. The Apostle Paul um, helpfully and um, unfortunately very sadly says that all have sinned. James agrees with this. That sin is born out of our own desires, and sometimes we give in to that. But because of the grace of God, and the blood of Jesus, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, there are other times where we don't, where we can wrestle, where we can reckon, where we can work, where we can become part of, of doing our faith, where we can become part of embracing a true religion of caring for others, where we can embrace empathy and generosity. And hopefully on some of those occasions, we can say no to our sin. We can push it back. And by the grace of God, hold it at bay for a little while. I have sinned, you have sinned, we have sinned. And sin always results in destroyed relationships, in a destroyed self, and ultimately in death. And we have to wrestle with that. Lent is a perfect time to do so. So, let me ask you, and you don't have to answer out loud, but what sin are you wrestling with? Where are your unchecked desires taking you? 
Where is God calling you to reckon and wrestle so that you can push back against the damage of sin? What relationships have been smashed in the wake of sin in your life? What parts of yourself have been torn and rent because of sin? What's being broken inside of you? It's worth it to wrestle with these things. I invite you to do that over the course of Lent. And over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about um, some particular sins. Meg and I, over the next three weeks, are going to talk about some very particular sins. And they're probably not the ones that you would think of as topping any list of sins. But they are monstrous and they do damage to us and to the relationships that we have and to the world around us. And, and so we want to talk about those. And then, and then at the end of our series, just before we get to Easter, we're going to talk about how then God helps us uh, deal with those sins and how we might live uh, without them in the world. When it comes to sin, um, though, just for today, as we draw this time to a close, when it comes to sin, my habit, and, and I think our habit, our bad habit, is that we very much are uh, excellent at pointing out sin as long as it's in other people, right? It's really easy to do, especially with, with people in politics and celebrities and and, and all those people over there who aren't like me and don't think like me and talk like me and believe like me, et cetera, et cetera. We're really, really good at pointing out sin as long as it's in other people. But what if instead we just stopped today and acknowledged the sin that we wrestle with? The sin that, that we give into, the sin that has a hold on us. What if we did that? What if we got serious about reckoning with our sin? What if, we, what if we brought it before God? And said, God, this is real in my life and it's damaging relationships and it's damaging me. And I need help to wrestle with it. What a difference that could make, I think, in our lives, in my life, in your life, in the life of the church. What if we were real? about that and said, we are not perfect people. We screw up or we mess up. But there's something that can be done about that. We can wrestle against that and we can rely on the grace and blood of Jesus to see us through. We actually remind ourselves of that every time we come to communion. We remember that, that we are not our sin. That we are not our worst failings that we have been saved from that by the blood of Jesus. Every time we come to communion, we remember that we do not have to give in to our most terrible desires, but that because of Jesus, we have a freedom to choose, to wrestle with his help, with his grace, with the guidance of the Spirit, to wrestle and push back against those sins. And so we come to the table today. And we're going to take some time and we're just going to remember what Jesus has done for us of pushing back against our sins, of freeing us by his blood to do that. We're going to give you time today to, to spend some time in prayer and just to acknowledge before God your own sins, your own desires, your own temptations, your own, your own propensities toward um, 
toward unrighteousness. If you want to take some time and, and do that as a family or with your spouse, with a friend, with somebody who's sitting next to you, if you, just, if you just want to say out loud for the sake of saying it so that it's real and you don't have to pretend any longer, hey, I am a sinner and I'm in need of grace. I wrestle with sin. I wrestle with temptation. That's fine. I encourage you to do that. But at the very least, take the time to say that to God. And then when you're ready, feel free to come to the table and um, gather the elements for communion. Communion uh, will be taken at your own discretion today. We're going to take that individually instead of all together. And as, um, as that happens, if you feel like you are in need of prayer, if you need someone to pray over you, whether it's about sin or something else, or if you want to pray on behalf of someone, a member of your family, somebody at work, our prayer commission would love to do that with you and for you. Uh, feel free, if you want prayer, uh, we're going to be over in Rose Street Cafe. Just slip through the doors or slip down the hallway into Rose Street, and we'd love to spend some time praying with you during uh, communion. And then eventually, um, Jeffrey and the team will, will lead us back into um, a song, and uh, if you haven't had communion by the time that happens, that'll be your cue to, to come and, and uh, take the elements if you haven't already. As we get ready uh, to come into a time of prayer and communion, we do want to confess before God um, who we are uh, and how much we need him. So uh, if you would uh, share with uh, me in this time of confession, we'll put that up on the screen if you'd uh, say these words with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways the glory of your name. Amen. Take some time to pray, and when you're ready, uh, the communion is here for you.